welcome to episode 107 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a look at the small single car teams in the Cup Series, how they're doing, how they stack up, and maybe even where they can go from here. That, plus our big Nashville preview. But first, as always, well, at least per new tradition, we are starting the episode with an historical deep dive back to a certain time in NASCAR history. David, this week we're going all the way back to 2004, the Bush Series race at Nashville Super Speedway. It ended in a quite memorable fashion. David, if you don't remember, we'll fast forward to two laps to go. Kyle Busch in the Hendrick 5 car. Rookie Clint Boyer in the 21 RCR Reese's car. Robbie Gordon in his own 55 car. And Johnny Benson in the James Finch number one. As the announcers say in the booth, you could throw a blanket over all of them. With two laps to go, they are stacked up two by two. And going down the backstretch... They all crashed, David. All four of the top four, they crash. And Michael Waltrip in the 99 goes on to win. Uh, just a memorable finish, something you to think about for a long time, and you just remember because you don't see it that often. What, what, what do you remember about Nashville Super Speedway in the early 2000s, David? Well, as you just said, it, it was something that we didn't see quite often. Uh, nowadays with uh, well, we're coming off the all-star race, so maybe some manufactured drama towards the end of races, but this was 04 in what was then the Bush series. And watching this, the, the entire race uh, was posted by NASCAR Digital and is on YouTube, so by all means, go watch it and enjoy it. But I watched the whole final quarter of it. It was enjoyable. It was a time in the Bush series when it was a mixture of young drivers and veterans. Uh, Benson was a veteran. Kyle Busch was 19 years old. Clint Boyer, in his second start, was 25 years old. And he was really the story for this race. This was his breakout race, his second ever start in the Xfinity Series. And he dominated. He led 104 laps that day, which was out of a total of 108 that he led for the entire year. Uh, and he was about to be just the, the the biggest story, you know, this this guy from Emporia, Kansas, who's found his way into Richard Childress racing, except that that's not what happened. So Kyle Busch, as you mentioned, qu quite close. You could throw a blanket over them, as you said, but he passed Boyer for the lead with about three to go. And immediately Boyer went to his bumper and it was just a kiss. It wasn't it wasn't like anything fancy. It was nothing bump and run, nothing technical like that. It just it worked. It rooted Bush up the track, giving room to Boyer, but also allowing Benson in third, Gordon in fourth to pull close behind. And that's how the two by two got started. Well, the accident happened when Bush again took the lead on <laughs> a straightforward pass. I mean, Kyle Bush made two killer passes for the lead inside of three to go at 19 years old in the Bush series. That was, that was pretty telling, turns out. But Boyer, I think because it worked the first time, he tried that bump again. And this time it just spun Bush out and it collected all four of them. You mentioned that Michael Waldrop won this race. He was actually in sixth, the fifth place car was was driven by Johnny Sauter, and he got just a little bit of the crash where he had to actually hit the brakes, and that's when Waldrip, going on the outside of all of this chaos, took the lead. Sauter regrouped and eventually finished second, and, and Michael Waldrip in victory lane admitted he got lucky. He said he was uh, the only way that he was going to win that race was if they all wrecked ahead of him. And that's exactly what happened. He said, when I went to the outside, I came out on the other end and didn't see anyone. And I thought it worked the way it was supposed to. Fun plan, wild win. By the way, Clint Boyer did not win an Xfinity Series race that season in 04. He didn't get his first Xfinity Series win until one year later, at Nashville, he made nine career starts at Nashville Super Speedway. He never finished worse than fifth. His average finish was 2.8. He led 40 or more laps in seven of his nine starts there. And now it's wild. Clint Boyer has retired the time the Cup Series is going to <laughs> Nashville. So, oh, odd coincidence, bad irony 
for him. He won't. I mean, he won't even be there. He's not even uh, doing the broadcast. So uh, bummer for Boyer, but he was during the Nashville Super Speedway heyday one of the tracks all-time greats. Yeah, and I look forward to previewing the race only because thinking back on it and the races they did have and some of the memories, uh, I love doing these deep dives because it just really puts it in perspective. I mean, how long ago that was and Kyle Busch is still going and still going strong. Maybe he'll be one of our picks to win there, right? And he's, you know, of the, all the ones we just talked to, we talk about historical deep dive. Kyle Busch, Still going strong, hasn't gone anywhere. It's just 19. And then you put, you know, further perspective. Think of someone like Ty Gibbs, who's only 18 now, right? Imagine what they could be doing 17 years later. And, uh, you know, what what we're seeing out of him this year is that a young Kyle Bush. It just gets me thinking when we do these d- deep dives, David. Uh, for sure. And, and puts a, I mean, just what a great series that was then. And I, I maybe, I don't know, maybe part of it is nostalgia, but I think more of it now than I did back then because we didn't think much of Michael Waldrop as a cup driver. And and honestly, we didn't think much of Robbie Gordon as a cup driver. Kyle <laughs> Busch was this upstart. Uh, Johnny Benson his, uh, was a tweener, really ba- uh, bouncing from uh, cup to Xfinity to trucks. Uh, and this was, and Clint Boyer was an unknown. So I remember watching this race live. I don't think I had any kind of concrete thoughts about any of these guys. Was that a as, Nashville pun? Did you just make a pun? What you did said, I? You, you said concrete. So sorry. Oh, wow. That's pretty good. No, no. <laughs> Subliminal. That was, that was not conscious of me. That's excellent though. Good pull. Um, <laughs> no, but, I, but now when we watch Xfinity and trucks now, maybe it doesn't resonate how good these drivers are going to be years down the road and hindsight might make some of this viewing a little bit better. I, I I don't know. Maybe that's just a weird case of a weird race that I had a pretty good memory of. I had to text you this morning to see if this is where we wanted to go for this. And, uh, and you made the right call. This was uh, a good uh, look back at a pretty interesting uh, Xfinity series race. Yeah. Anytime you can go back and, and hit up YouTube and go back and watch some old racing where, you know, it's a fun ending and we can deep dive and give you a little perspective and uh, depth to it. Some fun we can do here on positive regression. So that's how we start episode 107. Looking back on Nashville super speedway, as we will soon look ahead to the weekend, but I'm glad we started off this way. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed all right let's get to this week's uh then the meat of this week's episode david last week we looked at some of the the bigger teams right they were struggling we went down one by one but many of them a part of multi-team conglomerates right <laughs> multi uh, uh a part of the bigger organizations we got this stems you, you sent out the backs bat signal as you like to say and, and you sent out uh the signal on twitter asking for some Questions from our listeners. And Fernando, Fernandes954 said, how would you rank the car slash driver performance of satellite single car teams between each other? And this was a great question and a great uh, something great to look into because we can go team by team just like we did on the last episode. And David, he was very specific, Fernando, was you know the 21, 23, 43, and 99. Those four specific cars, we're going to dive in to what they're doing and kind of how they stack up to each other. So we'll start with the 21. We talked a lot about Matt D last week, fringe playoff contender. Uh, David, it was interesting because uh, Fernando, our listener, wants to know about single car teams. And uh, do we put the 21 in that category? How do you view this? 
Uh, no, no. This is essentially a, a Team Penske car. It is housed in the Penske shop. Uh, it is Penske crew chiefs and pit crews assigned to all of it. It, it is it is very much a Penske car, but it's it is presented as a single car team, and it's and I'm glad that he brought these four teams up because there's something interesting about all of them. They they are single car operations. They chose different paths in how to operate because there isn't one right answer in how to do this. The last time the Wood Brothers were a true single car operation, they were not competing the entire Cup Series schedule. It was back when Trevor Bain was in the car. If you recall, he won the Daytona 500. He wasn't even planning to run the entire series that year. Becoming an affiliate of Penske allowed them a chance to do that, to be relevant within the sport for Wood Brothers Racing to continue. And it was a good call on their part. Uh, But for Matty D, all the bells and whistles, he's got everything that Ryan Blaney and Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano have at their disposal. Uh, the personnel might be a little bit different, and that m- might be where the the change occurs, but that is very much a part of a, of a bigger conglomerate. But these other three that Fernando mentioned, we have two startups uh, that have uh, celebrities as co-owners, <laughs> but they have latched on to... Uh, in Trackhouse's case, Richard Childress Racing, in 2311's case, uh, Toyota, and and a little bit of Joe Gibbs Racing. And Richard Petty Motorsports does have a technical alliance with RCR. We'll talk a little bit about that. But that also means that they might not invest heavily. So we've got different paths to being single car teams, and they are certainly having different effects. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go down the line. We will start with 2311 Racing. Uh, we know all the hype. We know all the commercials. We And for good reason, right? For, I mean, as I keep saying, for a lot of people, this may be, if you get out of our bubble, David, uh, 2311 Racing may be the only NASCAR team a, a lot of the country knows, right? <laughs> you know, if you're watching the Today Show, oh, that's Michael Jordan's team. That's Bubba Wallace. Like, that, that may be the only car they've seen in the last year. So that, that's why they get a lot of attention. But from a competition perspective, uh, it took 13 races before we saw a top 15 out of the 23 car. Uh, but now we've seen three in four races. And the one we didn't was that terrible crash in Coda, sort of an outlier, if you want to look at it that way. So to me, David, I mean, as the season has progressed, the numbers, the finishes have progressed for 2311 racing. Um I think everything we're about to talk to talk about with 2311 racing depends on, or, or all these cars really, it depends on the expectation we had for them, right? Going into the season. If you expected the 23 car to be a race winning JGR car, uh, those numbers, those results are not there. If you expected this team to be maybe an improved version of Levine family racing, I think we're kind of seeing that. What do you say? I thought it was going to be very much what it has turned out to be. It was going to be a lot of hype, uh, and that has to do with the names attached to it. I didn't know if there was going to be substance. Right now, there isn't a lot because, as you mentioned, this was essentially LFR in 2020. But for 2311, there was no shop, no cars, nothing to work on until the middle of December. So that affected my expectations because right off the bat, they are at a time disadvantage. They're relying a lot on Joe Gibbs Racing, whose assistance in information sharing doesn't exactly have the best reputation, at least publicly. And on top of that, there is a low ceiling on what can be explored this year because this is the only year in which 2311 will run this car with the next generation car coming in 2022. How much time do you want to spend improving this car and this particular program? So the expectations were low, and I think for good reason. I would say that they have not exceeded my expectations, nor have they underperformed. Uh, you mentioned top 15 wasn't cracked until just recently, but I I watch them every Sunday. It's not as if they are gasping for air. So mm. I, I think they are still very much finding their footing. 
Um, and I agree with what you just said there. I still think, you know, at, at the drafting tracks, like the season finale, regular season finale in Daytona, I think Bubba should absolutely contend. He did in the Daytona 500, uh, perhaps in Talladega, but that may be their only and best shot. Um, just because, uh, the realities of, well, let me ask you that, David, is this the realities of a small single car team or is that, am I making excuses? Um, well, okay. I mean, when we think of, you know, small single car teams, the, the best latest example is furniture row racing, right? Well, the, they, they worked for years pouring a lot of money into different programs. They burned through crew chiefs, drivers, manufacturers, and finally they landed on, uh, Martin Truex, Colpern and Toyota. And that was a winning combination, but that it did not happen overnight. Um, I, I think the same could be said for, well, for, for certainly for 2311 and track house, uh, and, and maybe for RPM too, any improvement that they're going to have, isn't going to just happen overnight. But I look at this team, I look at what they're doing. If, if you're expecting them to make the playoffs or contend for the playoffs, I never thought that was realistic. Of course, if you win, you're in. Mm-hmm. And I think that has dictated much of what we've seen from Mike Wheeler this year, probably to his detriment, but there's a lot here. That is going right. And and I want to talk about what's working. So just on paper, Bubba Wallace, his surplus passing on non-drafting ovals is a positive right now. His surplus passing value ranks 12th in that particular category. That is important to know. It is a sizable improvement given that he was statistically one of the least efficient passers in the Cup Series last season. In addition to that, the car ranks 20th in average median lap. That's one spot better than RPM with Eric Jones. It's better than JTG with Ryan Priest. It's better than Trackhouse. It's better than Stuart Haas with anyone not named Kevin Harvick. Wow. It's better than all the front row motorsports. And it's better than Roush Fenway with Ryan Newman. So it's not, uh, again, I, I I watch this team. I analyze the stats. It, they are not gasping for air. They're doing some things right. So on paper, there is more here to work with than the teams around Bubba Wallace in the running order. I think being better than these teams that are struggling, we talked about some of them last week, being better than them in your first year is a team that might not be a bad thing, right? Absolutely not. So, uh, I mean, but again, it comes down to expectation. Some of it is hype. And again, how you view it. Uh, you mentioned the stuff that is going well. What isn't going well? I mean, to look, you don't want to be 20th in speed, right? So I don't know if that's the glaring obvious thing, but what's not working that maybe should be or should be improved on or can be. Yeah. The, the speed's just going to have to be worked on, in perpetuity, right? So the the one strength I see that Bubba has it, with his passing, it does not seem to matter to the result. He's averaging a 21st place finish. His three best races in terms of SPV, he averaged a 19th place finish. So there is some theory that the team could go as Bubba goes, but that is not how this team is approaching track position. And that's where the, the the carrot on the stick uh, that is the playoffs is is affecting this program. We've discussed the Phoenix call. Bubba Wallace had progressed through the field. Mike Wheeler's pit call to stay out during a caution period was, I think, a tacit admission that they weren't going to win with Bubba doing the heavy lifting. And while that might not be wrong, there's a world in which Bubba is achieving better race results, though not contending for wins, ergo not contending for playoff spots. But those results that he would get would be more representative of what he's physically able to do on the racetrack. And instead, the team is taking these big swings. Uh, Part of the reason that they don't have a top 10 finish this year mm. is because a top 10 finish outside of first is inconsequential to the goal of the season. If your goal is to make the playoffs. And I think for the most part, that might be true. Uh, for me, the final 10 races this year, if they do not qualify for the playoffs will be very interesting because if they don't, if they don't make it in the playoffs, they don't hit on one of these long pit 
or unconventional strategies, then we could begin to see some pragmatism in the pit calls for Mike Wheeler. And, and thus we'd see more straightforward races as in run the race. And in doing so, you'll beat the teams that you're supposed to beat. And then you will understand what the driver and the car as one can properly do. And it might not be good. It might not end up being a great result. But at as of this point, the driver's strength, which is an improved passing acumen, is barely impacting the results at all. And at some point, if you want to move forward as an organization, you're going to have to let the driver do some of the lifting. Good assessment. All right. That's how our look at 2311 Racing in year one for that program. Next up. Richard Petty Motorsports, new driver, Eric Jones, this year. A very talented young driver with Eric Jones, like 2311, David. Getting better. Uh, As you said in the last segment, uh, 21st on the speed charts. And David, when I look at 21st on the speed charts, I look at Eric Jones' finishes. Half of his, more than half of his finishes so far this year are better than 21st position. Maybe that's a little too simplistic, but it does tell you something, right? They are finishing better than the speed of the car, at least on paper. So that is a positive. Uh, For each one of these, we're talking about what were our expectations coming into the year. Uh, Again, maybe too simplistic for me, David, but I feel like Eric Jones has has the, the abilities and the history to show how good of a driver he is. So to me, Uh, He has to outperform what Bubba Wallace and the 43 team did last year, right? In a straight-up comparison, when when I think of expectations, uh, my expectation would be he better do better than Bubba did in that car, right? Again, maybe that's too shallow of an explanation, but when I'm looking at it, I'm like, did he improve the car? And that's what I will be looking at this year. Yeah, and it seems that he did, or the team has, uh, you mentioned they ranked 21st, they ranked 23rd last year with Bubba behind the wheel. But my expectation for Eric Jones, if you could remember back to this early episode this year, was that Eric Jones would lead the series in surplus passing. Uh, he does not. Mm. He ranks 11th overall. Huh. He ranks sixth on 550 tracks and eighth on road courses. It's not bad. It's just, I, you know, I predicted first. So now it seems like a disappointment. <laughs> uh, I didn't expect them to invest more money in the program beyond the driver that they hired. It appears that that expectation has been sufficiently met because while there are some improvements that I'm happy to discuss, they didn't all of a sudden emerge with top 10 speed. I don't think anyone expected that, but you know they're not even in the fringe playoff category, fair mm-hmm. to say. Uh, I don't think that that was ever realistic. So similar to 2311, uh, expectations were low and um, it's it, it's probably going to be just one of those things that it's going to be low and, until you actually start to see it. What is working with the 43 team and or Eric Jones? Because you mentioned our kind of our, what was that, preseason preview. We just talked about what what could happen with this relationship. And I remember you mentioning, expect to see Eric Jones passing the same cars a bunch throughout the same race, right? You know, pass a bunch of cars, then go backwards, maybe because of some rye strategy or what have you, pass them all again, you know, back and forth, back and forth. What, What is working? Did that play itself out? A little bit. He's he is he is producing. He ranks 14th in peer on 750 tracks, and it should be said that that is better than Kevin Harvick, Tyler Reddick, Brad Keselowski, and a host of others. So Eric is getting it done on the tracks of the future for NASCAR. So I think that's a thing. Uh, Crew chief Jerry Baxter's strategy output has improved ever so slightly. From last year to this year, last year, 54% retention on green flag pit cycles. It's up to 59% right now. That is still not at the series average, but here's the kicker. The positional net far, far better. They are at a plus five right now compared to a negative 79 for the whole of last year. So Eric Jones able to pass Jerry Baxter supplying positions and you mentioned that they are out finishing their speed ranking more often than not, and that's key in them doing that. All right, and that's a positive. So those are the good things. Where can they improve? What you know, 
What's not working, I guess, is what we're saying. You mentioned some <laughs> of it because with every positive, a little bit of negative because uh, we're, we're highlighting some things that they're doing well, which, uh, you know, they're coming from a position where maybe they don't want to start from, I guess is what I'm saying. So what, what aren't they doing well? It's the 550 tracks, and it's actually a little bit peculiar, uh, their struggle here. They are faster at 550 tracks than they are at 750, but Jones is less productive. He has a .357 peer on 550 tracks this year, despite the efficient passing. And if you consider that and Baxter's improved strategy output, these should be facilities on which Eric Jones is fine, Um, but he's not. Instead, he's uh, you know, l- let's go down the list. You're looking at 27th place finish at Homestead, 24th at Atlanta, 25th at Kansas, bad finishes at Daytona and Talladega, if you want to extend 550 to those tracks. And given all of that, it feels like for the second half of the season, the more 550 tracks we see that some positive regression is in the cards. Because while the results are uh, are not there, the ingredients are for good performance, uh, uh, good for performances or better performances, I should say. They're clearly there, but not having those results in the early part of the season impacts a lot of what we're seeing now. You know, they're, as we said, they're not a fringe playoff team, but they never were really even in that position to begin with. It can be a strong second half of the season that helps the driver, the crew chief and the team. But uh, in terms of any kind of uh, outward narrative or great performances, I I don't think we're going to hit that at this point. That is so important for small teams in terms of, you know, taking advantage or where you have a strength, like you better maximize it. Right. And when you're saying they're faster at 550, but they're not getting the the finishes that they should at, at something that is a strength for them, uh, you're, you're just leaving points, what have you, performance on the table. Yeah. And, you know, consider the affiliation with RCR, which has thrived at 550 tracks. They're able to score finishes commensurate with the effort, the speed, everything. RPM hasn't been able to figure that one out. And it wasn't it wasn't good last year with Bubba. It wasn't good before Bubba with Eric Amarola. Um, the team has been uh, on a shoestring budget as a single car operation for a while, especially since Smithfield left uh, with Amarola to Stuart Haas Racing. And this year was an opportunity. It was getting a, a young driver, a budding star in the car to see what they can do. And while they do on paper have strengths that are very real, they're not capitalizing. it. so as of right now, even the investment, if it's the only investment they made in the driver that they hired, they are not properly taking advantage of it. All right. Good summation on Eric Jones and RPM Richard Petty Motorsports. Next up, Trackhouse Racing. David, another one, another new team coming into this season. Uh, another you know single car team where, again, it was expectation versus reality. They are doing better, for me anyway, than I thought they would be. For some reason, I don't put them on the same equal footing as 2311. To me, 2311 had something of a leg up, right? A better alliance. You had Toyota. Uh, more established when you think of, again, the ghost of LFR. I feel like Trackhouse came from nothing, right? It was like, what? what is this? All of a sudden, Pitbull's in the sport. Uh, Justin Marks has a team, Daniel Suarez, and they're they're competitive, right? It's not like a gone brother car. Uh, and now they're, they're running, you know, we've seen them run during a race anyway, in the top five, in the top 10 occasionally. And if you take away the crashes, David, that Daniel Suarez has had, and, you know, Daytona, Martinsville, and they had a terrible mechanical issue at Circuit of the Americas that just killed their day really early. If you improve those just a little, I mean, that's a lot of points, and they're suddenly moving up the potential playoff ladder. So I think they're doing far better than I expected them to. I didn't think they'd be this competitive. And it's not, it it is kind of weird because we're going to talk about their speed here in a bit, but they are so better than their equipment from a technical and tactical standpoint. This is not a half-hearted satellite effort. It never seemed that way. No. But I would say that this is an ideal satellite partnership. It isn't RPM uh, in which, you know, they're they're solely relying on RCR and Chevrolet. Trackhouse took the initiative 
Um, Justin Marks went out and hired Travis Mack. Travis Mack was the top strategist last season in the Xfinity Series, last few seasons really, on behalf of Michael Annette. That was a shrewd hire. And uh, Jose Belasco Figueroa is an RCR employee. He's an engineer. He's filled in when Travis Mack has been suspended. Uh, but he he was assigned by RCR to Trackhouse, and he's there to foster that relationship. And the, the speed isn't there yet, but it feels that the people that need to move forward are there. It feels like the beginnings of a worthwhile brain trust for a team of this stature. So not only are they better than I anticipated, but all of this, what they're doing, it feels as if they are building something this year that is also sustainable for the immediate future. Well put. Um, so yeah, with the expectation part of it, that, that's what just intrigued me is because I, I did not think much of them. And all of a sudden we, we, we are still talking about the 99 car uh, often, especially during races. So uh, drilling down what specifically is working to have us talking about the 99 car. I, the obvious highlight was the Bristol dirt race that yeah. Suarez almost won, right? Yeah. But, but, but aside from that, ninth place at Dover, 11th at Kansas, yeah. top 15 finishes at Homestead and Charlotte. And these are where they're supposed to be lost. They're supposed to be in left field at some of these more straightforward oval tracks. They are not. The blend of the driver uh, in Suarez, who legitimately is a top 15 driver. He ranks 15th in pier. He is rarely crashing. And Travis Mack is a strategist. He goes long a lot. He pits long. He pits weird. It, But it does tend to work. The Kansas race, they were positioned to score a lot of positions if NASCAR called a caution for that runaway Tyler yep. Reddick tire. Yep. NASCAR didn't, but they gained positions on that cycle anyway. Not not that big bounty that they would have gotten if a caution had dropped, but the strategy and its execution was so efficient on a track with very little tire wear that it worked really well. Travis Mack takes these big swings, which is aggressive, but it's less so if you're good at it. And he, he's had those races. They gained seven positions from green flag pit cycles at Phoenix, eight at Talladega, 11 at Richmond, and eight at Coda, uh, different tracks, different circumstances, different results, big swings. And, and that's how they are punching above their weight class in a lot of respects. All right. So again, expectations low already punching a higher, you know, up, up, up the weight class, if you will. So what isn't working that, that we can be fair about, if you will, you know, there's already a bunch of disadvantages coming in as a brand new team. What's something that's not working. You think they can actually improve on? They're slow. They are so they are so <laughs> slow. In races with Travis Mack on the pit box, they rank 26th in average median lap. Wow, yeah. And it's it's good that they are able to get good finishes despite that. Uh, Daniel Suarez has earned a finish equal to or better uh, than his speed ranking in 13 of 16 races. Wow. It's not something that you can just expect them con to continue doing, though. Mm. Every team is trying to get faster. That's a constant. But in this case, with as good as they are tactically, technically, they go really far with a better brand of speed. If they are regularly securing top 15 finishes now with a car ranked close to 26th, Imagine what they could do with the 18th place car or 15th fastest car or 12th fastest car. The game changes pretty quickly for them. All of a sudden, they are legitimately contending for playoff spots. Absolutely. And again, you know, ifs, ands, and buts, or what have you, but a crash at Daytona, a crash at Martinsville, and, and that Coda race. I was expecting good things, and I think Daniel would have expected good things of him at Coda. It was a big mechanical issue that had him in the pits for so long. If each of those are top 20, it may not be season changing. They're pretty far out in points wise, but it might be perception changing if you, you know, take away those, those three bad finishes. But, uh, you know, I'm just maybe I'm giving a little too much credit, but just doing better than I expected for the 99 team. So good for them dale dale you know it was cool to see pitbull in charlotte so maybe that's why maybe i'm marking out over pitbull david <laughs> um yeah a lot of people i think did <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if i say it correctly he is um he's a, a very small person but uh he attracts a crowd and, and somehow he stands out too i don't know it's amazing that's star power for you 100 percent. glad to have him in the sport 
So we've talked about, well, we, we talked about Matty D and the 21 team, but really the 23, the 43, the 99. Again, this all started with a listener question. We've been asked to rank them based on this season's performance and for future seasons, David. Uh, I'll let you go first. I don't know how you want to interpret this question or the answer, but I mean, who, who's doing best or and what, what do you see in terms of potential for these single car teams in the future? So I'm going to go two separate rankings here, one for now, one for in the future. Such a and, David answer. And it's the same order. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, Trackhouse at one, 2311 at two, and RPM at three. Trackhouse at one, really? Yeah, 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 I, I, I do. Um, it, it does seem that Justin Marks is attempting to do things operate a business uh, far differently than what is traditional. It seems they have geared towards operating this team in the next gen era they just got a one-year head start on that i think that there are questions when this becomes a self-sustaining team i don't know how long they're going to stick with rcr but yeah it can get a little a little dangerous a little murky um stepping out on your own but if you're taking baby steps like they seem to be doing then that's probably for the better and if they're uh look we're hearing about expansion plans for both track house and 2311 yeah yeah um, even with the problems that 2311 has right now, they're positioned really well for the next gen era. Uh, they are Toyota's number two organization. From from that standpoint, maybe they have a slight edge over uh, Trackhouse for the future. That can certainly be argued. But the the fact that Trackhouse has kind of done everything that they said they were going to do, they have they've built uh, a team that's just if not fast good. And that is really hard to do. They are talented and smart. Um, so they've, they've brought that to the table. The other two, 2311 is, as we've talked about a work in progress. If they're ever on the same page, driver and crew chief, and maybe goals, then a lot can change. If they go to two cars, a lot can change. And then the third for me, and I think it's a distant third is Richard Petty Motorsports. Yeah. I, I, and I, and it's, it doesn't take much to look on the the hood and the quarter panels and and see, you know, Petty's Garage or Medallion Taxi, and those are uh, just internal brands of uh, of Andrew Merstein and, and Richard Petty, and that means it's not new money going into the coffers, and that's a bad situation to be in. Um, they are still trying to do a lot with a little, and are doing quite a few things right. Eric Jones is probably going to come away from this having some strengths to point to at the end of the season, but for the future, it's, it's just, it's tenable, right? Like it's, a, it, it's just a difficult position to be in, uh, with that kind of unknown without that money being brought in. Um, these other two programs are well-funded, well-aligned. They're investing in themselves, RPM, it's not clear that if they are investing in themselves, it's at the same level and they certainly don't have outside sponsor funding. So yeah, they're going to be in a precarious position both now and in future years. I understand your logic and I, and I can agree with it. This, you know, this year, maybe I do give the nod to the 99 over the 23, at least so far doing a little more uh, with, with a little less exceeding the expectations. Long term, though, my, my ranking would still have the 23 car. As you said, the second second tier, if you will, uh, Toyota car um, or Toyota team and, and just the funding, right? The, the funding and money that comes with it. I, I just think that's such a benefit. And just like 99 is taking baby steps, so is the 23 car. I, I know, again, there's bigger expectations with come with larger scrutiny, but if we're dealing in reality and where they should be, we are seeing improvement from the start of the season until now. If those baby steps continue with the support and sponsorship and money and Toyota and all that stuff, and hopefully the improvement of Bubba Wallace, I think they are better poised uh, for the future. So I'm that's where our, our rankings will differ, uh, if, if okay. that's fair. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Ranking number two in the Toyota hierarchy, is that good or is it a kiss of death? 
Well, no, I, I think it's good because I think they, they're dedicated to it and they want to keep going. Um, but how's well, Furniture Row I, and Levine Family Racing doing right now? Give me a second to do your circular thing. <laughs> you, you, were, you were setting me up like a chess player. I knew what you were doing. Yes. Uh, 0 for 2 on the second ranked Toyota team. But it seems like there's a buy in. You don't want to piss Denny Hamlin off, right? I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of sponsorship money there, right? There's a lot of effort going into it that comes along. Uh, the, the synergy and everything working together is the only thing that will make it better, right? And so to- Toyota has incentive. Certainly 2311 has incentive. Everybody's got the incentive to keep this going and treat it differently than maybe the LFRs and Furniture Rows of the world. So maybe I'm just being uh, bright side and optimistic. I don't know. I mean, if Michael Jordan can't get it done, then then yeah, then the problem is definitely on Toyota, right? We can say that safely. Uh, yeah, yeah, in all, it's probably not a bad position to be in. And I think a lot changes for that organization when they go to a second car next year, if they're able to land Kurt Busch, all the better. Uh, he comes with funding and that uh, all of a sudden becomes a, an intriguing uh, program. All right. Good stuff. Uh, in terms of look again, I can't say it enough. This whole conversation, David sparked from a listener question and the good news, positive regression listeners will have a bonus episode next Tuesday, full of more of your questions. Again, David put the signal out, you guys delivered. So a bonus episode next Tuesday of positive regression, answering more of your questions. Make sure you listen to that. Before we go, of course, We have a preview of this week's upcoming weekend in NASCAR. All three series, David, at the Nashville Super Speedway for the first time since 2011. And the Cup Series has never raced there. So this is all new. At least a lot of it is new, especially on the Cup side. But for maybe a lot of fans or those who just don't remember the Nashville race because the Cup guys weren't there, uh, this is significant. So... You know, there's not a notebook. There's no races we can go back and analyze, but there are some basics, you know, trying to do a little research here. I can tell you it's a mile and a third track. It's concrete like Dover. A lot of comparisons when you ask in the garage, like, hey, what do you compare this to? What are you looking toward? Obviously, Dover is going to be a big comparison. It's a little bigger than Phoenix. Uh, David, one of our uh, engineer friends told us uh, it's kind of like turns three and four in Darlington. If you want to put a corner on it, I mean, to try to, so it's a mixture of Dover and turn three and four from Darlington. This is all the stuff the teams are kind of working with trying to just guess on what Dover may be like. Nashville may be like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, no. And well, good, good slip of the tongue with, with Dover, but unlike Dover, which has the concrete surface tires won't wear the same way. And they, when cars won't drive anywhere similar to how they drive on rubber that's been laid down like it does at, at Dover. So that dynamic will be on display and, and pretty unique to anything that we've seen in recent years on Cup Series tracks. Uh, they did two Goodyear tire tests this year. Uh, Chase Briscoe, Christopher Bell, and Kurt Busch were the participants, uh, one driver for each manufacturer. Those tests saw lap times with practically no fall off. Hmm. And that is going to be weird compared to the other 750 tracks that we visited this season. Uh, in this case, just, I mean, Nashville is on an Island of its own. It's changed from a surface point of view, from the way it was 10 years ago. Uh, the cars will carry a heavier load, than they did back then. Uh, it's because of this that Goodyear is bringing a tire that knowingly will not wear. It is for safety purposes. Uh, it's a bummer if uh, if you're hoping for an interesting race with a lot of tire wear, but it does open the race up to long pitting and no stop bets under caution. And to that end, no lead here is truly safe. Not that other races cater uh, to to dumb teams, but (laughs) this is a race in which seemingly only smart decisions will have a chance at winning. And given that, you know, we're working on SIM data and uh, and what we learned from two tire tests, it's going to take a, yeah, a, a truly intelligent team to figure something out on the spot and capitalize at Nashville. 
So clearly a lot of unknowns, but as you said, it's a 750 horsepower race. Are there any knowns we can take from those races that we've seen so far this year and potentially apply? Could you foresee anything learned from the 750 horsepower races so far we can apply to the weekend? I think we've learned that speed as a whole uh, on 750 tracks is not transferable necessarily from one track to the other. It's almost as if NASCAR made 750 tracks the you know the most important track type in all of NASCAR. <laughs> Funny that that Weird. happens. The <laughs> fastest teams on 750 are uh, as follows: Denny Hamlin, Joey Logano, Martin Truex, William Byron, and Ryan Blaney. Uh, Kevin Harvick ranks sixth. Chase Elliott ranks seventh. Kyle Larson ranks eighth. Hmm. I really, I wonder how this weekend's race will be approached because with Joe Gibbs racing uh, and Martin Truex specifically, only the playoff 750 tracks seem to matter or work for them right now. Uh, Denny Hamlin's strength and speed is a little more universal across the 750 tracks, but it seems that there has been uh, some selective focus, which I find interesting. I'd love to learn how impactful all of this turns out to be come playoff time and how it pertains to Nashville um, will be telling and, and fascinating uh, because truly all of these tracks are unique. Every, every track we go to on the schedule, not all of them have the same level of importance as far as the schedule goes. And it feels like this weekend will reward the team that puts the most emphasis. And by that, I mean time and money on nailing the setup to specifically win Nashville. Yeah, and I think that's a fair preview of Nashville because, again, there's so many unknowns. Uh, we've taken the data and what we've learned from some of the races, and we can tell you you know, who's been good at some places and what they've done. But until we see it on the track, that's what that kind of makes this year exciting because so many unknowns going to some of these new, uh, or at least you know, not-so-long-ago-visited tracks. So th this will be fun this weekend. David, that's what makes uh, picking winners not easy. So I'll let you go first. Who is your pick to win? Nashville Super Speedway this weekend. Denny Hamlin is Ooh. my pick. I'm betting mm -hmm. on the speed. Easy. Uh, the speed that we saw at Richmond, uh, the speed we've seen on the whole this season on these types of tracks. You took the uncontested layup of the fastest 750 horsepower driver, someone, a veteran who's been there before. I I'm going, you know, far more professional, David. And I'm taking the second fastest 750 horsepower driver who's been there before and even won a race. I'm going with Joey Logano to win at Nashville Super Speedway. And so we've got Denny versus Joey once again. Uh, for all the same reasons you just mentioned, I like his speed. I like his previous success there. Uh, Penske, Paul Wolf, you know, they're just smart. And uh, it's never, it seems like a bad idea to pick Joey Logano. So why not pick him at a place that uh, where there are so many unknowns and at least he's been there before. I think it's at least a safe bet. Uh, it's not 40% chance to win, but it's pretty close. Uh, 750 and road courses for Logano right now feel pretty good. Uh, that that's his new comfort zone. And I did briefly consider, uh, that pick for the win, but, uh, just, you know, thought Denny Hanlon was faster. So I went with that one. There you go. All right. Those are our picks to win. How about your contrarian performer? I had trouble with this one. So you go first. Yeah, I did too. Um, I'm going to pick Christopher Bell. Uh, and for, for the reason that he's, he does have top 10 speed on 750 tracks. It's the only track type on which he is an efficient passer right now per his surplus passing value. And he was one of the three drivers that took part in both Goodyear tire tests uh, this season uh, on behalf of Joe Gibbs Racing. So it's a little bit of experience. I'm sure he uh, supplemented it with some simulator time. A lot of these drivers probably spent a lot of time in the simulator preparing for this race, but he's seen the track. He understands what the tires do. Um, I like how he's able to read some of these tracks and 750 seems to be his bag this year, uh, at least. Uh, so yeah, the 20 car, Adam Stevens, the crew chief, Chris Bell, the driver. All right. Uh, I took some circuitous logic. I'm not sure if any of this makes sense, but I really did study the speed charts. And remember what I told you about Dover and, and half of Darlington? Like maybe this is a track, you know, mixture of all those things. Uh, Tyler Reddick. Tyler Reddick doesn't have the, the greatest 750 speed, but he had an eighth at Dover and a 12th at Darlington. 
both of which are better than his 750 horsepower speed on the season. So he outperformed himself at Dover and Darlington. So to me, I don't know, that was interesting. So I think Tyler Reddick will be my contrarian performer and just at least outdo his expectation. And that's how I'm interpreting my contrarian performer this week. Ooh, okay. Reddick. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that feels contingent on a high line somewhere. And I don't think that's where, I don't, I mean, no, he's yeah. not going to rim ride at Nashville. So no. it's going to have to look uh, markedly different than a, a quintessential Tyler Reddick race to come to fruition, but he's, he's really evolving from track to track. Uh, I, I didn't think he'd want to pole on a road course this year. So there are strides being made. Um, I, you know what, like I said, competitive jump ball. Let's just see. We'll see how it goes. All right. Good episode. We are available on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, TuneIn, and YouTube. We are available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. This stuff helps in spreading the word. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them, obviously. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod.com. Don't forget, next Tuesday, it's an episode full of your questions answered. David, you are always working hard heading into Nashville. What do you got this weekend? Two articles from me this week on NBC Sports, including a look at drivers who have improved the most in several key statistical categories. Uh, you can find that on nascar.nbcsports.com or by following me on Twitter at DavidSmithMA. Good stuff. And make sure you follow me on Twitter at Alan Kavana. Uh, had a good uh, uh, episode, uh, appearance on the episode of Backseat Drivers for NASCAR.com. It was myself and Cole Pern. Uh, he has a little more knowledge than I do, but it was good. We talked a lot about the Nashville race coming up, so make sure you check that out. Make sure you check out Fantasy Live on NASCAR.com before you set your fantasy team. And again, hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff, because our speed sport video, uh, Quick Hits, will prepare you for the weekend of racing, not just NASCAR, all across the board, sprint car, NHRA, all that stuff, having fun doing those uh, speed sport videos because there's a, so much good racing, especially now here in the summer. So make sure you check that out. Thank you, as always, for listening to Positive Aggression. This has been episode 107. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Have a great weekend. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.